You're listening to Knowing Faith, a podcast of Training the Church. This is Kyle Worley, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jen Wilkin and JT English. And on today's episode, we're also joined by Hannah Anderson. Welcome, Hannah. So good to be here today. We are so glad to have you. Hannah is the author of Made for More, Humble Roots, All That's Good, and the forthcoming, which you can pre-order now, Turning of Days. Uh, And she is also one of the best follows Mm -hmm. on Twitter. I'll just say that. I mean, that's kind of a dystopian (laughs) landscape out there on Twitter. But Hannah is somehow able to communicate wisdom and beauty on that platform. We are grateful for her contribution to the ether. There's more good, more truth, more beauty, more wisdom in the Twitter space because of Hannah Anderson. And we're so glad to have you on the show. Welcome. Well, thank you. And thank you for your kind words about my Twitter presence, because I have to tell you, it's somewhat of a contested thing (laughs) in my household. Um, I, as a mother, I have two teenagers and a middle school child. So my teenagers especially have uh, kind of screen time issues. And their hook is always, but mom, you're on Twitter all We're the geniuses. time. And they are right. But my 14-year-old son, the other day, he, he had the, the best thing. He's like, mom, you do know you don't have to be everybody's mother oh. on the internet. <laughs> and I was like, you are either brilliant or you're about ready to get sent to your room. And I'm not sure which, (laughs) but it might be both. Yeah. It was very helpful though. Uh, Part of the podcast that we honestly is just really, it's selfish for us is that we get to have on great guests and we get to kind of figure out who do we want to just chat with about whatever we're going to be talking about. And that's been a real joy, probably a selfish joy of uh, the Knowing Faith podcast. And so when we knew we were going to be hitting Genesis 2 and dealing with men and women in the context of that passage, we just felt like, Listen, we've talked with Hannah about this before, and it'd be great to expand that conversation more broadly. And so we're going to be diving into Genesis 2 today, thinking through specifically the relationship between men and women in the creation account of Genesis 2. And this is tied into the larger kind of Knowing Faith Season 5 theme of Genesis 1 through 11. So we've covered creation, we've covered who God is, who created the world, and today we're going to be looking at Genesis 2, right? we, uh, after verse 3. So you got the seventh day, and then we go into what is, is it a second creation account? Can we say that? Well, is that what's happening in Genesis 2? Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's a retelling of the creation account from a different vantage point. And so whereas before, it was as though you were um, seated in the heavenlies with God, looking down on the earth, watching God bring order out of chaos. Now you get to zoom in and enter the scene uh, on on basically on on day six and, and hear more detail because the vantage point is now going to be... Um, the man and the woman. And so it's really kind of cool. And I'm excited because Hannah is one of my favorite people. JT was being a little snarky to me earlier uh, about my evident affection for Hannah. Uh, but I'm not even, can- not even sad about it. Yeah, he said, everyone needs someone to look at them the way Jen looks at Hannah. I have this, I, uh, I have this, <laughs> I have this screenshot of right when Jen got on and Hannah started talking. I think we should put this in our social media feed somewhere. Is, I mean, Jen was yeah. smiling literally ear to ear yeah. when Hannah was She's talking. She's my friend and I'm not even seeing now. I remember this completely. Completely different. That is not how I think. I remember, oh, probably eight, nine years ago, like flagging you down at at a conference conference. and just being like a puppy dog following you around saying, (laughs) I need to talk to you. 
I think you're the person that I need to talk to these things about. Well, and we've had so many. I mean, we really have had eight or nine years of really good discussions, and she has helped mm-hmm. me personally so much on this. Um, and and so uh, to get to talk about this with you today, Hannah, I'm going to try to not embarrass myself, but I'm just happy to share you with the rest of the world. Not that the rest of the world doesn't already know who you are, but on this particular thing. So we get to zoom in, and then we have Hannah here to help us sort it all out. So in in Genesis 2-4, we get that we get that Toledot structure, mm-hmm. right? So we've we talked about that in an earlier episode. So we just to kind of acquaint us here, we are in a flow of a narrative, specifically in Genesis 1 through 11, where there's a really defined structure and 2-4 opens up. So we're going to dig into the creation of man and woman. But before we do that, we get 2-4, which is these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And this structure, this these are the generations of, is going to be a recurring theme. It's a marker for us in Genesis to to realize, okay, I'm at a I'm at a very pivotal point in the narrative. There's something the author wants me to see here that is very meaningful because this structure is embedded across Genesis and specifically Genesis 1 through 11. And so let's just start here. What happens in Genesis 2 verses 4 and following? What's the let's let's start with a high-level overview of the story and then we can start diving down. What happens? So you had this really fast flyover of six days and then the seventh day, and now it's going to slow way down. Um, And the focus will shift to humans. It'll be less poetic. It'll be less repetitive. And um, there's an important little cue that's given to us in verse uh, four, where it says, the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. That's Yahweh Elohim. And so it's the personal title for God attached to God Almighty. So it's, if you think about the, the Lord's prayer, our father who art in heaven. And so it's, it's in some sense, bringing God down from that vantage point we saw him in. It's almost like, and God came down is kind of the language that's here that we'll see elsewhere in Genesis. Um, so we're getting an intimate snapshot of a scene um, that's, a, that's, a, that's a microcosm of what we saw in the six days. So God is drawn near, and and in this drawing near of creation, this kind of creation from breathing room, you might Mm say, uh, he creates man and woman. But what's different about, what are some of the differences between, we get an account of Adam and Eve in Genesis 1. We get an account of the creation of uh, of man and woman in Genesis 1. What are some of the differences that are particular to this account in this story in Genesis 2? Well, for one thing, we find out that um, you've got the man created out of the dust and then the woman shows up later on the scene. Uh, and so we didn't know that when in Genesis 1, it just shows that the man and the woman are both created and, and given equal dignity, um, equal standing before God, equal image bearers. Uh, and so here we're going to get a little bit more detail on how those relationships fit together. Yeah. And the, we get the breath too, right? Yeah, the breath I mean, that's of God. Huge, mm-hmm. The breath of God. So let's just go ahead and go right at it because this is something that I feel like I have heard. And I remember I heard this growing up, not from my father. He had better sense than that. Uh, but I, I heard this from other men in a church that I was growing up in. Well, look, God created man first here. And uh, that is that means that, you know, men should be the they're, they're first in society. They're first everywhere else. This is what God intended because the, of the ordering of creation. God created man first here. Are we to make something out of this? And if so, what have been the, what have been the wrong interpretations of this? And what are some of the ways that immediately when we start off here, if we start off on the wrong foot, that's going to influence the rest of how we view this passage? I mean, Hannah, are we to make anything out of man being created first here? 
Well, I think if we actually read the passage, man isn't created first. Dun, dun, okay. dun. <laughs> this is what I mean. So often. Well, that's a swerve, Hannah. <laughs> yes, it is. Because, because it, it certainly looks like he is. <laughs> so this is how I like to approach things. It's like, here's A, B, and I'm going to say, let's go C. So let's find C. One of the things that we struggle with when we come and start to ask questions of this passage is our questions are formed not necessarily by the text, but by our context. So we bring questions that we want answers to that have been shaped by our kind of cultural and sociological experience. And when I say that man was not created first, I mean that the garden was created first. So the creation was created first, and you can't understand or even begin to ask questions about the man and woman until you understand the placement and their calling to the world at large. So I think a lot of times um, when we come, we bring these questions about the relationship between men and women, and they are constructed by a lifestyle that is very detached from the earth and is very detached from larger creation. And so we come with questions that are shaped by radical individualism and kind of a distance and a detachment from the rest of the creation. So we come asking these kind of oppositional questions about men versus women, rather than looking for an answer that makes sense of more of an organic relationship, not only with each other, but with the creation as well. And so before we even get to the question of man being created and woman's creation, we have to understand that they emerged out of a creation that already had order and logic within it before they came on the scene. So the reality is something like the category of maleness and femaleness existed before human man and human woman came on this name. Well, let's pause right there because I think that's pretty significant Mm -hmm. what you just said. Um, Because I think that you're 100% right that when we get to creation, the creation story, um, if we... If we, if we are going to zoom past all of the logistics questions, we've done a previous episode about how Genesis 1 is primarily answering the questions of who created and why, not uh, how, the method questions. But if we zoom past those, typically we zoom past them to get to the creation of Adam and Eve. Right. Mm-hmm. So like we're like, we're right there. So it's like, yeah, God created everything. Blah, blah, blah. And then he created <laughs> and yeah, yeah, yeah. Yada 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 yada. Me. Okay, there's some stars. <laughs> there's a heavenly body, which is not a good tagline for a Kyle, show, evidently, let it according go. to Jim. Um, but uh, but there is the creation of man and woman, and that that's somehow that's that's where the juice is, that's where the meat is. Let's get there as fast as possible. But you're saying And I think this is a really helpful point. And I don't think it's something that I have even considered significantly, which is, hey, these categories of maleness and femaleness that are now going to be distinctively, would we say applied to the unique creation of Adam and Eve? Is that the right way to say that? Well, Adam and Eve absolutely are distinct from the rest of creation. I think this is a flaw when people begin to think in natural law categories, where they begin to think about how male and femaleness operates in broader creation. The temptation is just to apply that to human beings and say, well, male birds do this, female birds do this, therefore humans operate out of their male and femaleness. But you're right that there is a distinct calling 
of the man and woman. And that informs their maleness and their femaleness rather than the reverse. So you have two things happening where they are in partnership, emerging out of this creation that already has a logic that came from the creator to begin with, but then they are being tasked as the um, co-regents of this creation. They are being entrusted with the very thing that they emerged from. And so you do have this kind of paradox in play where they are not separate from the creation, and yet they are acting as image bearers ruling and reigning over the garden, caring, caretaking for the garden. So I think it's important when we ask and form our questions that we're aware of both sides of that paradox, um, that there is a creational logic, there is a beauty and an organic nature to the relationships, both between the men and women and with their surroundings, but that they also are tasked um, in a way that is distinct because of their humanity. So to, so to tie this back to our, our earlier conversation in our last episode about form and fullness, you're saying if you talk about the filling of the creation with the man and the woman, apart from understanding the form that, that was the framework for that, then you're going to get it wrong. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I think that's really helpful. I, I, so maybe a listener is hearing this and they go, okay, Hannah, you got me, caught me. Uh, Adam is not, cre- man is not created first. But okay, so he's not created first and they understand why that's important, but he was created before Eve. So maybe they go, okay, so it's not first, it's before. Are we to make anything of him being created before Eve? Well, I think so, but I think what you make of it becomes more significant if you start with creation and the categories embedded in creation. Because I think if we approach this and we kind of atomize, not atomize, but atomic, like no, we make that, them- That's great word, it's great wordplay though. It's great wordplay. Keep that going. <laughs> so if we make them atomic individuals separated from each other, separated from the creation, and we come to the question of Adam was created before- the only thing you're do, able to do then is to line them up in order of significance because they're separated. And so it's one and two. And let's put them in a row. Let's put them in their linear order. Let's make sense of this kind of separate things being ordered against each other. But if you come with an understanding of the organic nature of creation and the integral kind of way that God has made the world to work at this logic of um, interdependence and um, kind of serving each other. When you come to the question of what does it mean um, that Adam was made before, you're going to ask different questions and you're going to look for different pictures. So rather than just lining things up in a linear fashion, you're going to ask things like, what does it mean for something to exist inside something else before it becomes a thing on its own. What does it mean that Adam existed inside, I mean, Eve existed inside Adam before she was formed? And so you suddenly have a category that we don't use very much in the modern West, which is the idea of um, representation. It's the idea of union, that there could be something inside of something else that exists there before it exists before. And what you'll you'll find is this category, while we're not as familiar with it in 
our kind of hyper-radicalized Western thought. It is a category that is all over scripture. The category of, oh, I don't know, headship as representation that in Adam all die, but in Christ all shall be made alive. Or the way Hebrews references Abraham um, and Levi paying ties to Melchizedek because Levi with, was within the body of um, Abraham. Loins. It so, says loins. Yeah. Yeah, I just I I like to make sure we get that worked in whenever you just want to make sure that loins was the key word there. Thank you for your contribution. Yeah, who's being who's being clickbaity right now? (laughs) Just let let the audience note. Um, I did not say that. I don't know if Kyle is getting um, really happy right now because one of his favorite topics has to do with this idea. Yeah, absolutely. No, and I think that what Hannah is saying here, I just need the listener to just really. We're going we're gonna to have to go back and retrace our steps here because this is absolutely essential. It is so significant what she's saying. And if you miss this, you are going, you're not just going to miss out on all of the doctrinal corollaries because representation, we are, we've already accepted that as a category in the West for transmission of sin. We've already accepted it for uh, the, uh, the idea of substitutionary atonement. But what Hannah is talking about here in terms of this representational thing, it's not merely a, it's not just a conduit we use to get the right doctrines in the right places. It's a way of viewing self and the world that is alien to our Western, to much of the Western philosophy and culture that we have absorbed. And when you start thinking about it as a, not just a doctrinal channel, but as a real way of viewing self and the world, uh, it is going to change the way that you don't just read this passage of scripture, but you read the whole story. So I want to, I want, I want to just hang on here. Now, Hannah, you've mentioned two things that I think we've got to come back to. Um, one, the role of natural law. Okay, so listeners may not be familiar when yeah, you what, said a what is ago, natural law. Yeah, what is natural? Law? What is natural law? I mean, isn't that the question? Who am I? Because people <laughs> use this. Do not laugh. Those are real. I know. I, you know, here's the thing, Hannah. Here's the funny part. And you no, don't no, no. know how many times a day I stop and ask. Hannah, that. no, you need to stop right here. And you need to know you and I are on the same page here. Jen is just, I'm just playing Jen right now. Whenever I ask these questions, yeah, sure. Listen, I'll use a big word. I'm, and for Jen, big word means anything more than five letters. And she uh, makes me define it. <laughs> Well, you know what question I'm asking multiple times a day? What can I eat next? Like, that's how, that's like, I'm lucky to even be here today. No, but I think this, because there's going to be some of our listeners who this is brand new for. So like, let's slow down. What is natural law? Okay. So natural law, and you'll hear a lot of different people using it differently. It's basically the, when I use that language, I mean that the world around us as God has created it reflects the truth of his nature and the ordering of creation, that there is a logic, there is an order, there is a purpose, not just to, um, you know, theology or the scripture or our lives, but to the entirety Mm -hmm. of creation. And therefore, there are things we can learn from God, about God, from the creation, about the way he works, about the way he has ordered things. 
The difficulty with natural law, though, is that like us, the world exists under a curse. And it's really hard to just look at the world and determine what is what God intended Mm -hmm. and what is broken in the Mm -hmm. curse. And so when some people use natural law, they mean, well, um, the lion kills the antelope and therefore the strong survive and the weak will be done away with. And that's just the way the world works. And for Christians, we have to ask the question, is that the way God intended the world to work? Is that the result of sin? Is that quote unquote natural Is that what is normal versus what was intended? So when I speak of natural law, I mean just that base level assumption that there is a logic and an order and a purposefulness to the universe that is designed to reflect the goodness of the creator. The CSB Life Council Bible provides biblical counsel and practical wisdom for pastors, ministry leaders, counselors, parents, couples, and any individual seeking practical wisdom through the application of God's Word. It includes more than 150 full-length articles on a wide range of topics and tough issues from respected Christian counselors and scholars. Visit csblifecouncilbible.com to get your copy today. Visit csblifecouncilbible.com to get your copy today. Have you ever wondered what is God's heart towards you? In this noisy world, God's heart beats hard with love and mercy. But how can God share his heart with us when he doesn't have our attention? You're invited to spend 100 days discovering the beautiful, merciful heart of God with Overflowing Mercies, a new devotional by Craig Allen Cooper. The Lord is not ashamed of you or quick-tempered toward your faults. Each one of your weaknesses, faults, frailties, and failures does more to arouse God's love than to stir up His anger. If you could fathom in some small way how warmly God truly feels about you, the faintest grasp of His immeasurable affection would reduce you to tearful wonder and heartfelt gratitude. As God's mercies are new every single morning, overflowing mercies will continue to be a constant well of refreshing comfort, encouragement, and strength. It's perfect for personal quiet times, family and dinner table devotions, and small groups. Let this devotional help you get intentional, stay connected to God, and continue loving others. Order your copy of Overflowing Mercies, 100 Meditations on the Tender Heart of God today at moodypublishers.com or wherever great books are sold. Yeah, that's, I think that's really helpful. Um, when we so natural law was one thing we needed to circle back on. The other thing we needed uh, that I want to hear a little bit more on before we move forward is this cate- this idea of of thinking of representation as it pertains to the relationships between mm-hmm. man and woman. So, could you say a little bit more about that? When you're talking about Eve being inside of Adam or woman being inside of man, and the reason for this is I, I think. You know, we can't have these conversations without thinking through the wider cultural context we're having them. And when we, somebody might initially hear that, this idea of woman being inside man, and they might say, well, hold on, are you telling me that uh, there is a gender confusion here or that the original person is androgynous or does that imply something about Adam that we don't want to have there? So when you talk about this idea of man's relationship with the woman uh, or Adam's relationship with Eve in terms of representation, maybe just say a little bit more about what you mean and what you don't mean. 
Mm-hmm. No, these are all good questions. And I'm sorry, I just dumped all this stuff without a lot of... No, this is so good. <laughs> it's like, I think about these things and then I for, forget that I haven't actually said them. And so they're just all up here. Um, but I think one of the things that we are struggling with in this conversation is to move from the categories that we are used to working in which is every person is a separate individual person in the sense of we're hermetically sealed um, and we have this, this sense of self in the world that only exists within our own identity and our own personhood. And the way scripture speaks of image bearers is that is true. Agency, individual agency is absolutely a feature of image bearing, that level of autonomy, um, that there is physical autonomy, physical agency, absolutely 100%. But there's also a paradox, and we see this in Genesis 1, when the language of the text says that male and female, he created them. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And, And that is, yes, there's two kind of image bearers. There are two, there's a male and a female image bearers, but it's also that the image of God is um, somehow we are relational beings and that our self in the world is somehow tied to both our individual autonomy, but the entirety of the community that we exist in. So it's not just men and women, it's our ancestors, it's um, our families, it's our church communities, it's all of these things that underlie our, our ability to be ourself in the world is bound to relationships. So when we're thinking about Eve being within Adam, or we're thinking about this idea that we emerge from someone else, it's as simple as um, Paul uses this same category in 1 Corinthians 11, when he talks about the man, the woman was made from the man, but then in verse 11, he says, nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. And so in the scripture, there is this sense that we are coming from places. We just don't emerge on the scene at birth as if we just were dropped from heaven. We come from other people. And so in that sense, what we see happening here is, and it's really beautiful because there is this kind of literary fittedness where the mother of all living, the, the, the image bearer that would be the one to bring forth life from her own body was first taken from another body. And there's just this beautiful lyricism about that. And so what we're not talking about is that somehow yourself is somehow hidden in someone else or that you can only be fully human in relationship to someone else or your, you know, relationship to a man. A woman can only be fully human if she's in some kind of formalized relationship to a man. The point is that none of us emerge on the scene from not for on our own and that there is this beautiful generations right we use that word in chapter in verse 4 that this is the way god has designed the world to work that we would be coming from these beautiful partnerships that even our very lives as image bearers would emerge from someone else 
So I don't know if that answers the question. So you're also, so there's another, the first layer then would be, as you were saying, that the the garden is created first, that Adam is not spoken into existence. He's formed out of the dust. So so he, so that, and and if Eve is in Adam, then the two of them are tied to the the creation. Uh, And and then that breath of God piece, you know, the enlivening. Um, Yeah, that, how come nobody talks about this? Because they're not at my house. If they'd been in my house, we would be talking about this all the time. I don't know what the rest of you talk about in your family. Uh, where are we going to eat tonight? Uh-huh. Um, uh, where are we going to take out? Uh, so, okay. I think that's really helpful as a foundation. Um, when we get to the the creation account of, uh, of Eve, of woman, um, We've talked about this on the show before, but the emphasis is on unity, right? On sameness, mm-hmm. yeah. The, on yeah. sameness. The emphasis is on sameness. We've we've talked about how this is absolutely pivotal. If you've missed that, you can find any of the episodes where we've talked about complementarianism or men and women in the past. We we hammer that home. But so if the emphasis on Genesis in Genesis two, when it comes to Adam and Eve, man and woman, is on sameness, why does that matter? Why do we have to capture that here? Like why, I mean, I, I know it's the obvious point of the story, but why is that significant for how we're talking about men and women relating together? And I think a follow-up question is, is what's on display here explicit to marriage? That's a question that I find myself asking a lot, you know, because how many times I've heard, uh, you know, in a sermon or in a wedding homily, you know, God is the first officiate to the first marriage, mm-hmm. you know, and like Genesis 2 being like, look at this, it's the first wedding ceremony. Is what we're seeing here, so the emphasis is on sameness, why does that matter? And then is this in explicit connection to marriage or does this have broader designation for male-female relations? Well, I think just to go back to the text, it's really important to hear what the man says when he awakes and the woman is standing there. And he he appeals to this idea of being drawn out of himself. He says, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And, you know, Jen's done a lot of good work on this, but the whole point of Adam's response there is just because just prior to that, he had been looking for the thing that was fitting to him, the thing that matched him. And he had looked through all of creation and had found nothing. He looked through the entirety of the animal kingdom and did not find the partner that was fitting to him, that that was his match. And so when he appeals to the fact that Eve is taken out of him, his point, the point that he's making is, I know this is the same because she came from me. Hmm. I know this is human. I know this is an image bearer because I know she came from me and I know what I am. And so there is an assumption in Adam's logic and in the scripture's logic that the fact that Eve is taken from him and in this relationship to him is based on Adam's knowledge of himself. It's based on his understanding of his standing and his calling and that she would absolutely share that because she came from him as opposed to what he saw in the creation around him. Okay, talk about the rib. You got any thoughts on that? Oh, I don't want to talk Uh, about that. (laughs) Oh, you don't want to talk about that? Because how many times have we heard, oh, you know, it was the rib. It wasn't the toe. It wasn't the head. Uh, What's that joke? What can I get for a rib? You know that one? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> oh goodness. No, but is but is I that mean, important? Is that so, important? So I, it's important in this sense that I mean I don't know exactly what you mean about the rib, the placement of the body. I mean, there's all kinds of very sweet things that we say about the rib as being from his side. Right, right, right. Um, I do think there's two things here that are significant. One, it is his physical body, so it is the um, same substance, right? So that is the point of taking something from Adam. It's like sourdough that starts something else. So this carries all of the same um, entity, identity, DNA, whatever you want. It carries over. The second thing is in the image of the first man and his bride being taken from his side. Um, And if you hear that, I hope it begins to echo the second Adam and his bride being taken from his side. Mm -hmm. So we have this imagery in the crucifixion of Christ being pierced and blood and water flowing from his side. And I think it's not by any means a jump to see this imagery of the church being within Christ on the cross and that kind of both representation and union, and then the church being taken from his side to be his bride and be his partner as the second Adam fulfills the calling of the first Adam to rule and reign over the earth. Okay, my mind just exploded a little bit. I'd never <laughs> thought about that I've been waiting for before. her to get to that part. That was so good. <laughs> I was like, what do you mean make her talk about the rib? I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> I know what I'm thinking about for the next year. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, there are, well, your there's eye, a whole your eyes lit up. There, there's a whole set of comparisons between the first Adam and the last Adam like that that are really useful for for students of the Bible. And um and but I loved the the new idea to me is that we were in you know you you understand I'm crucified with Christ. But when you say it that way it's mm-hmm. like, "Oh. Yeah, this is Kyle Worley ranting on union with Christ. Only it's linked to the creation account in a way that I had never seen before. I just love it. Yeah, that's really beautiful. Uh, I also think, though, about um, Ephesians 5 and how closely tied Mm -hmm. the embodiment piece that she came from his body and the emphasis on that word body and flesh that you see in the commands to husbands about how they're to think about their wives uh, is that, you know, she is is a... that, that Adam looking back and saying she came from me is the emphasis I think that's laid there in Ephesians 5 as well. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, okay. Um, gosh, there's a lot there. Um, I think one of the things that if I'm a listener to this show, um, I'm asking myself is, and I know I'm, I know I'm coming back to beat a drum here, and if we can't get it, then that's totally fine. Is this just a marriage relationship? Right. Like what is the what is the man's obligation to the woman in light of the way that this account is given to us? And and then conversely, what is the woman's obligation to the man in light of the way this account is is given to us? If Moses knows what he's doing as he writes this, if the spirit inspires it, then why does it why is it expressed in this way? What are we supposed to take away? Well, I think you know, obviously there are two layers here. It is both the first man and the first woman, and it is both the first husband and wife. It is the first marriage. But but I think what we tend to do, again, we come to the scripture and we want to impose our 
questions and our kind of lived experience onto it and say, answer this niggling question I have about my own marriage. And I don't think that's the intent of scripture. That's not Moses' intent in writing this. And if you think of the audience that Moses was writing this for, he was writing to tell people who their great, 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 great grandparents were. So this is a story, not just of this kind of prototype of humanity, which it is, but it was a story that they belonged to by generation. It was a story they belonged to as the fruits of this first marriage. So they are tracing their identity in terms of um, who they are as a nation through Genesis, back to the beginning of creation in the first man and the first woman, but also the first husband and wife the first people to kind of start the family that we are in. And I think if you come again to this more organic family, and I don't mean like nuclear family, how do you set up your home? How do you set up your relationship between husband and wife? But if you think of yourself as a son and daughter of Adam and Eve, if you think of yourself as a descendant of Adam and Eve, you come back to this text and it changes the questions you ask in terms of not how do I relate to men and women, but how do I relate to my brothers and sisters who are also descendants of Adam and Eve? So the questions about male and femaleness in terms of the way the scripture pauses them, and even the way Moses sets up Genesis as telling us about our ancestors, you can't read that in a family context and not begin to think of the men and women in your life as descendants who are not just abstractions. They're not just abstract male human beings or abstract female human beings. They are descendants of this line, which makes them your brothers mm-hmm. and sisters. That's a, bing- that, that's a bingo kind of moment right there. Um, I, I, if you're missing it, listen, like Adam and Eve are often dealt with abstractly as theological figures. And of course, Adam and Eve have theological significance, but, they're, uh, but they're, they don't just have a theological significance. They have a genealogical significance and not just for the people of Israel, but if you believe them to be who God calls them to be throughout the Bible, genealogical significance for the whole of humanity. Okay, then I need a little help here because we often speak about brothers and sisters in two categories. There is a sense in which every human is a brother or sister to me, but then there's a special sense of brotherhood and sisterhood. And I, I need you to sort of clarify that for our listeners. Right, absolutely. So I think it goes back to the categories we used a little bit ago about the difference between the first Adam and the second Adam. And so Christ is fulfilling and becoming what the uh, first Adam failed to do. And so basically the church as Christ and his bride are bringing forth life into the world and we are part of the household of God as brought through the redemption that Christ offers us. Within that household, there are brothers and sisters that are the truer brothers and sisters, if that makes sense. They are the fulfillment of what our human relationships are intended to be the same way Christ fulfills what the first Adam was supposed to do. Christ in his full, um, he, he becomes the fulfillment of what human beings were meant to be as image bearers and relating to each other. So there is that sense of where we within the church, within the household of God, call each other brother and sister. But what we mean by that is that we are fulfilling, we are attempting to fulfill the 
the way that human beings were intended to behave toward each other. So there is a specialness about what's happening within the church, but not because it's so entirely different, but because it fulfills what was the intention. So do I have a different or greater obligation to my spiritual brothers and sisters than I do to my human brothers and sisters? Like, how do I parse that out? And when I read in the Bible, this is, what, this is the way you're to act toward a brother or sister. How do I know how to think about that? Because I know like, you know, Israel thought they owed a special allegiance to other Israelites that they did not owe to Gentiles. And you see that language in the epistles where Paul says, especially to those who are the household Household. of faith. Mm -hmm. Right. So there is this assumption that those people would have a greater capacity and loyalty, but it's not a difference in kind. Um, I want to say this the right way. No, I think where you were headed was that's the exact way I was thinking. Yeah, it's not a different. It's not not kind, it's degree, degree. right? It's, It's degree. So I have a responsibility to behave toward human brothers and sisters in a way that honors who they have been created to be, even if they are not living in the fullness of who they are created to be. So I, in my choices, must relate to them as a good sister, even if they are being a bad sister or a bad brother to me. So my calling is to be the kind of sister that reflects um, the image of God, whether it is to my um other siblings who are attempting to do that as well within the household of God, or to those who don't yet know that that's what they're called to do or called to be. So there is a sense where within the household of God, there are different things that we can appeal to and we can call each other to. And so because of that, the relationships um, are going to be distinct and perhaps will have the greater capacity for for intimacy, for love, for shared calling, for shared purpose. But in respect to how we are to relate to our brothers and sisters in our human identity that may not yet know that they are called to be image bearers, I still relate to them with the same kind of gentleness and peace and goodness um, that because of who I am, not because of who they are. Yep. I think that's really good. I think that's really good. And part of, uh, it seems like part of the ethic of the Old Testament is God calls uh, Israel to be a different kind of people among the Canaanites that certainly transferred into the New Testament is this outside in kind of ethic where, hey, the way that you are going to live as my people amongst yourselves should be something that is persuasive and beautiful and extends to the watching world that they are invited into and then having entered in, enveloped in as a full participant, right? Um, And that kind of, that's something that's progressively revealed over the whole of scripture. But I do think that that is a part of the ethic that flows from the kind of relations that we're talking about here between men and women, which is this kindred familial relationship that is supposed to be simultaneously a wonder of God and a witness to the world. Yes. Yes. Is there anything that you feel like, and JT, Jen, jump in here. Is there anything as we kind of land the plane on this? I could talk for days uh, in this conversation because there's so much here. But is there anything that that this understanding of Genesis 2 helps us to reset that is pretty crucial 
in light of just conversations that we have about the life of the church, the life of the world in our present moment? I mean, how does this help us? You know, a listener's going, what do I do with this? Okay, so one of the things as we've been talking that I've been trying to kind of wrestle through and I've been kind of quiet is, is I'm trying to think through who can be my representative? What qualities, qualifications does it make, does it make somebody qualified to represent me? Is it their humanity? Is it their distinction from me? Or there maybe a quality or characteristic that I share with them that not all humans share? What makes someone a representative? Mm-hmm. Well, and, and that's a question I've wrestled through as a woman a lot within the church because there's this tension to say, I need my embodied life represented, or I need my perspectives, or I need my experience somehow at the table. And I, and I think that's true. But I think underneath that, there are a couple things that make this idea of representation difficult. And, and one, again, I'm going to go back to the fact that we live in a moment in history where individualism is more powerful than communal, organic, mutual common good. And so in an environment where individuals are pitted against each other, and that is the world we live in, um, in that environment, it's going to be very hard to be represented by someone who doesn't look like you, whether if they're male or because the question of the text is, how could Adam represent Eve, who is female? I mean, he's male. And, and that question comes up a lot when we're speaking about Jesus Christ as the second Adam. How can a male represent females that would be in yes. him and then redemption mm-hmm. come through him? Like, uh, And again, you know, the best answer I've heard to that is, well, how can he represent anyone who's not a 33-year-old Middle Eastern Palestinian man, if that's the case? So what we need to do is expand our categories of the language of representation. To us in this moment in time, in this culture, representation means someone who looks as close to me Mm -hmm. as possible and can take my sociological, whether it's economics, my maleness or femaleness, whatever, and they can take that and represent it in the conversation. I think what we need to understand is that is a problem that has been brought to us by the fragmentation of our culture and our kind of Uh, again, that kind of radical individualism where everyone is on their own and they can only find safety in likeness. I think what the scripture is talking about in terms of representation of headship, whether it's Christ's headship to represent um, those who are redeemed, the church or Adam's headship to represent the sinfulness of the world, is that headship in that sense or that kind of representative is not about everything Mm -hmm. looks the same. It's that you are just the one who is standing in for everyone that comes behind you. Um, and it and it also means in the case of Christ, particularly what's so beautiful about Christ's representation is that he cares about the differences. Mm-hmm. He is not going to seek his own interests. And I think the reason we're so nervous about representation that doesn't look like us is because we know by experience that someone who has not walked in our shoes will not care for our needs, will not care for our pain, will not care to do uh, what is best for us. And the beauty of Christ's representation and what what, um, the scripture calls anyone who is representing to do 
is to look at the needs of those they are representing, to serve those who don't necessarily look like them. That is so helpful, Hannah. That's really, really good. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I'm not crying. You're crying. (laughs) (laughs) Hannah, it's been a joy to have you on the show. And listeners, you are in for a treat. Well, not in for a treat. You have received a treat. <laughs> Is that the way to say that? You have been you have been treated. <laughs> Consider yourself treated. Consider yourself treat yourself. Treat yourself. Yes. Um, listen, uh, listen. If you want to find Hannah, you can find her on Twitter. We have already said and endorse she is light in a dark place out there. And so you can go find her on Twitter and follow her. I would highly encourage you to do that. You can find her books, Made for More, Humble Roots, All That's Good, and the forthcoming Turning of Days, which you can pre-order now. Hannah, thank you for joining the show. If you want to find out more about Knowing Faith, you can find us on social media, Instagram, Twitter. You can go to trainingthechurch.com slash knowingfaith or patreon.com slash knowingfaith. Join the conversation there. In our next episode, we're going to be diving into Genesis chapter 3 and figuring out what's wrong with the world. So we hope you'll stick with us. Grace and peace.